Andy, who do you pull for now that you live in California a lot? Who's your team? My daughter, my son. <laughs> Baseball, sir. Yeah, I I was a Sox fan all my life. Yes, sir. And, but that was an era when before yes, you were sir. born, you know. Yes, so. sir. You hear that, Chris? What year were you filmmakers? Filmmakers are Sox fans, sir. <laughs> I, it was, I was born uh, 1946, but it was. I've had characters in my movies by the name of Nellie Fox. Um, the, the teams were Earl Batty, Sherman Lawler, Ted Klazuski, Early Wynn. Jim Lannis. Nellie Fox, uh, um, Jungle Jim Rivera. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy was, Pierce. Yeah, Ted Klazuski. I don't know any of these names. <laughs> and Minnie Minoso. And Louis I know Minnie Minoso. Louis Aparicio. Louis Aparicio was the first autograph I ever got when I was a kid. Really? I said, thank you so much, Mr. Aparicio. My father made me call him Mr. Aparicio. And he looks at me and he goes, be welcome. <laughs> Minnie Minoso signed my hat. Yeah, he did. Really cool guy. Okay. I've got a great Minnie Minoso story that we'll lavish later. I guess, yeah, I'll start it us off. Uh, this is Max Fitzpatrick of the Max and Tony Show. Welcome to episode two. Here we have right by our side is uh, Andy Davis. For those, Absolutely. For those, Andrew Davis. Andrew Dave. Davis is his full name. But for those who aren't familiar with the name, you're certainly familiar with the work. Notice there's no middle initial because my parents couldn't afford it. it was very <laughs> no way. <laughs> Andrew Davis made the greatest Chicago movie ever made, The Fugitive. He also helped film one of the greatest Chicago movies ever made, Medium Cool. Yeah. Code of Silence. Above the Law. The package. The package. Under siege. Yeah, we're fans. Collateral damage. And and uh, holes, man. Absolutely. Shia LaBeouf. My son is a big Shia fan. You know how I'm always saying, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't You know what? I finally saw what you saw in Shia. I saw Lawless. Oh, yeah. With him and Tom Hardy. Did you and see American Honey? Yes, he was incredible. Incredible. In the movie's incredible. I love it. But uh, favorite movie of 2016 is American Honey. Yeah, and nobody saw it. Well, you really? know, I didn't even hear about it. What is it? It's about this um, like moving, rolling community that uh, goes from door to door trying to, you know, get people's money and, you know, like uh, selling magazines. Yeah, selling magazines. And uh, it's run by this really attractive, atrocious character. Uh, I don't know her name, but. Uh, She's just the leader of basically these lost souls of middle America. And she recruits them to sell magazines and gives them a cut. She's like the the jefe, the boss of the kids. Oh, really? Yeah. And they just they just live and play hard, and it's it's dark. But the, there's a reality like, to the shooting that's unbelievable. Kind of like gypsies. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of look, or the tinkers. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The word gypsy has become a derogatory term in, in Rome. The people of Rome, the Roma. Yeah. It's like yeah. Yeah, I yeah. I've I've never known what else to call. Um, Wandering tribes, wandering people. Well, that's exactly you know. what they are. They're definitely a wandering tribe. Yeah. Um, and I well, highly there's, recommend. There's no the movie. one ethnicity that claims, you know, gypsies. You know, it's like there are Romanian gypsies, there are Pakistani, uh, Italian. You got to do a whole uh, show on the history of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, there is because my my daughter's a flamenco dancer. Really, and, and her teacher taught her the whole history of how it happened. Is this and the how, daughter and how the paisley became polka dots? Is this, is this the daughter that just had a, a child? Yes. And your grandfather. Andrew Davis is now a grandfather. So, Gramps. Yeah. How are you liking it? I'd rather be the godfather than the grandfather. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, no. I like being the grandfather. Excuse me. Um, the Gramps is great. And, and granddaughter is wonderful. And, and you're staying in Chicago for a little while here. Staying at, I'm in the Ukrainian village. In our old the, stomping the same, grounds The of same Ukrainian areas village. that my family had to flee Ukraine from. Wow. <laughs> really? I had the pleasure of meeting your daughter uh, a year ago. Um, really nice uh, woman, but your whole family is nice. What's with that? I'm talking to my dad. I'm like, is there anybody in his family that's no mean Davis? He goes, there's no well, mean Davis. Well, you're nice too because we, we were the fathers who beat our kids properly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you get nice kids now. 
guess so. I never, I never spanked Max or his sister. I never, ever beat them. I got threatened, but never, uh, yeah, never. Yeah, and then when he was happened. about ten, he started. When I'd say I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna smack you, he just like laugh at me. I started you know? to figure the act out. Yeah, there, we yeah. tried that. We tried the timeout thing, and then once they had the internet, it's like timeout bullshit. You know, I'll just go on the net and entertain myself. You know, so I remember there was a there was a whole period when kids said, "I'd rather you hit me than give me the punishment of no." No, money, no, no, no money, devices, no, I can't yeah. take the car, whatever. Just yeah. hit me. Get it over uh, with. Yeah, my, my my father was a big I, believer in corporal punishment, you know? It's like you, you – Yeah. I wasn't you, a big troublemaker though, man. You got to admit that. No. I, and no. I was smooth. I was smooth. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's you a had a gift for not getting caught, whereas your sister did not. It's you a know? testament that this is a father-son show. I think that's great. This is tradition. I, well, what I'm finding out is I got a lot to learn from them. You know, I well, mean, that's good. Uh, you know, I started doing licensing for you know beer cans and a line of fashion and stuff like that. This is all stuff he thought up. I would have never thought of it. Yeah. You know, there's an. Uh, I think there's some women's underwear you could design. I'm I'm hoping to get right that, into that. that there, you know, there could be. I could see those skulls and those birds. You know, <laughs> he's had some crazy offers, man. Like yeah. I, I think most recently, uh, you got offered a coloring book, right? Yeah, that'll be cool. Hopefully, I I don't know that I'm gonna do it. I mean, I, I it's kind of antithetical to what I want people to do. I'd like it's to weird. see him. But you you did a series in the draw. alphabet, right? Oh yeah. So yeah, why not turn ago. that into a kids book? That's it's a good not idea. A bad idea. That's a good idea. And then you could animate it. How come we didn't think of that? Alive. This is why we need Andy Davis. This is why uh, we need you, Andrew. Okay, I'll do the soundtrack. So your early life, Chicagoan. You went to CVS. No, I went to Bowen. Bowen. I went to Bowen. I was born in I was born in Rogers Park. I, no, actually, I was born at Bethany Hospital on the west side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And the reason I was born as a Jew at a Baptist hospital mm-hmm. was because my parents were part of a group called the Chicago Medical Center, Civic Medical Centers. It was on Jackson. And these were visionary progressive doctors who formed a group of people who you pay so much a month and you could see any one of the specialists if you had an ear infection or whatever you needed. Mm-hmm. Well, right. the AMA hated this idea. It was socialism. Now everybody's ah. in So they wouldn't yeah. let these guys practice at the uppity hospitals. So they were relegated to a small Baptist hospital on the west side. And that's where I was born, my sister was born, and my brother was born. Really? Yeah. And, and then they brought me home, and I was literally brought home to an apartment next door to what is the Heartland Cafe on, oh on lunch. And my, gra- my father uh, had just come home nine months before from World War II and conceived me. My sister was four years old. And um, I remember going to... Sam Leone Park, which Sam Leone was an Italian guy who ran all the lifeguards. And they built the lifeboats, the lifeguard boats, in the field house in the winter. That's a serious job in Chicago because that lake, you know, being a lifeguard on that lake, that's you got to really be able to swim. But yeah. th- this was a, this a, was a whole now. history of kids learning how to save people's lives, learn how to swim. And they literally were boat makers. It was a crafts, craft shop in the winter. And they would flood the, the, the park field. And, and my dad would wear his, <coughs> his army jacket and his boots. And we'd go down and, and ice skate right there at Sam Leone Park. Wow. They, called, they named it Sam Leone Park later. It's at Lund Street Beach. And then we moved to the south side uh, when I was eight years old. So down in, in Pullman, in not Roseland. Pullman. No, I was, I, I was an East Sider, Eddie Verdoliak's 10th War. Ah. Uh, this is a hundredth and... Over down by there. Uh, Serbian, Croatian, Irish, Polish, Mexican, pocket of blacks, of Jews. It was a interesting What they mix. referred to back then as Bumtown. Well, I don't know what to call it, Bumtown. We were called South Deering. Yeah. And there was an infamous race riot that took place in that neighborhood in the 50s yeah. called Trumbull mm-hmm. Park. A black family moved into an all-white housing project, and the local population went crazy. It was sort of like what happened in Marquette Park years later with King. And so I grew up with a lefty family watching this racial tension going yeah. on. And it, it, was, it was devastating. There were bombs going off for literally two years. You'd hear explosions. Mm-hmm. And there's a novel that was written about it by a guy named Frank London Brown called Trumbull Park. And it would be a great series if somebody did it. Maybe do, you should do it. To do it today. I yeah. Don't know how you do it. 
But um, so I think that had a lot to do with my first film because my parents did not leave the neighborhood when the the scare took place that you better sell your house now because blacks are moving yeah. in and you won't get any. So my first film was Stony Island, which yeah. was about my 11-year younger brother staying in a neighborhood and making music as and a And being language. part of a, a band that was completely integrated. Well, now it is. And, yeah. and, and uh, he's one of the f- four or five white people in the band and depends on the size of the band, of course. But um, it was about a kid growing up in a in a black neighborhood and making it because yeah. he didn't leave and they trusted him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, and now, music is a common you, language. You talked your brother into quitting college to do that movie. Yes, he was he was down in Champaign. How do your parents feel about that? Did you go to U of I as well? <clears throat> yes, we both, and so did my father. And Richie's son went there for a while, so there's four generations in Illinois. But um, the, the movie was based upon music being a common language, which I think is something that, you know, in terms of where I grew up and who my parents were, it was about how are we going to get along? How are we going to be fair with mm-hmm. each other? How are we going to respect each other as human beings and not for the money you have or the power you have, but, mm-hmm. you know, just surviving? And and uh, my mother was upset, I think, that he didn't go back to college. But as he, as he has said, you know, she wanted him to help people when he plays in front of 50,000 people in Grand Park and they're dancing and they're feeling yeah. good. They feel better. Well, and, and also your, your dad, Nathan Davis, who's a, a marvelous actor and – I know that when you were uh, a young man, you were exposed to people like Studs Terkel. What was it like being around that milieu as, as a young man? Well, my parents met in the theater, and the, the, they met at the Chicago Repertory Group, which was a place uh, above where I was last night, which is Buddy Guy's Legends on Balbo. Mm-hmm. And it was the theater of the left. It was like the group theater, but in mm-hmm. Chicago, called the Chicago Rep Group. And they had all kinds of people there who were interested in making the world a better place per their perception of what was wrong. They would perform on picket lines. Mm-hmm. They would perform at rallies, union rallies. And Studs was one of the major founders of it, uh, along with a gal named Gertrude Solker, who was a good friend of my parents. And, and my dad became a member. And then my mother, whose father was uh, uh, interested in those politics, allowed his attractive 18-year-old daughter to go down there because he figured the lefties were not going to be bothering her. Uh And my dad was a lucky guy who got her, you know. (laughs) uh, Was your dad always always supportive of your filmmaking career? I mean, you casted him in Stony Island. Oh, yeah. And he he was – I was a, he was always an actor. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he what happened is he he came back from World War II and he, and it was hard to su- support a family yeah. on on ra- doing yeah. radio and acting. I think he said Betty Cocker coast to coast by accident. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, and so he went to work for his father-in-law <clears throat> and he, and he, and he went for to work for another company selling drugs. He was a my dad was a drug dealer. Oh, wow. He was uh-huh. a wholesale drug salesman for Louisan Drug Company, mm-hmm. which was a big company in Chicago. Yeah, I remember that and, when uh, I was little. And he wound up literally going around like, you know, death of a salesman from from, gro- from drugstore to drugstore with a big briefcase full of samples and all kinds of deals. And um, he did that for 20-some years, but he always kept in the theater. You know, my first vivid memory of Nathan Davis is his role in Thief. A letter-perfect performance as a guy who makes the piece of machinery James Kahn needs to get through a seven-layered steel safe. The the ethnic metal smith. Your dad is like just, you know, not an ounce of energy expended he doesn't have to, and it's indelible. It's one of the great performances of It's funny you mentioned Chicago films. uh, Because I was... You know, I was thinking of that and Stony Island as movies that capture Chicago that no movie has before. Absolutely. I mean, and, in and, and, you know, so. well, I mean, It's funny because it's interesting you say that because uh, Dove Honig, who cut Stony Island, who's a dear friend of ours, yeah. became Michael Mann's editor. 
and Dove invited Michael Mann to come see a early, early cut of Stony Island. And he saw those wet streets. Yeah. And he wanted to hire Jack Fujimoto. So the, yeah. the look of those streets got translated right into. Well, he'd take yeah. a fire engine and hose him wow. down. That's what he did yeah. for Thief, yeah. you know? Yeah. We just and, got rained. Talk Fujimoto, who, who, who shot all kinds of films for Jonathan Demi, for you, for. Um, did he work for Michael Mann as well? No. No. M. Night Shamalian. Sh- yeah. He worked for him a lot. Anyway, awesome. so, uh, so that that's how. Uh, my parents met. They met in the theater, and and I was around. What would happen when they'd have all these parties with their old friends? They would start doing scenes and skits and routines mm-hmm. from the plays they did. And so we, they were always they're always hamming it up and mm-hmm. singing old lefty songs. And I remember meeting Pete Seeger when it was I was a kid. Yeah. Wow. He, was, he was visiting and staying with a friend of my parents in an old town and an old house. It was built before the Chicago fire. There's still the chains on it from where they mm-hmm. dragged it and moved it over there on Eugenie and next to Win Strachey's house. And, uh, and so Pete Seeger walked in and there was this guy with him, this kid who was hanging out with him named Bob Gibson. Mm-hmm. Who was one of the great, great folk, folk singers, singers absolutely. Who, who sang at the Gator Horn with Gibson yeah. and Camp. And, and and so I grew up around it, it, the Weavers and Pete Seeger yeah. and, and the Blacklists and all that stuff. It's funny you mention that because I'm, I'm working on a piece right now about the Gate of Horn. Yeah, and, and about Rush Street and both the Gate of Horn and Mr. Kelly's, I mean, kind of single-handedly desegregated the music business in Chicago. You know, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by that history. I saw that Llewellyn Davis movie. And I, I was kind of interested in it, but I really wanted more of it to take place in Chicago. Yeah, it, it was. It, did, it didn't talk about the politics at all. That no, it was just no, about a depressing should've. young guy. But anyway, um, the the racial aspects of Chicago music are interesting because Benny Goodman was one of the first guys to start using black musicians in his mm-hmm. band. Lionel Hampton played with Benny Goodman. Mm-hmm. And Gene Krupa went to my high school, went to Bowen High School. So there was a, the whole the whole thing about people coming up from the south. I think uh, Louis Armstrong got off the Illinois Central at, on Stony Island when he yep. came up here, he and he lived there Island. for a time. Yeah, um, he, you know, New Orleans, which claims Louis Armstrong now. You know, there's a park and everything, but he kind of got run out of uh, New Orleans and could not really make a living. He got uh, sideways with Jelly Roll Morton, who was a Creole musician who didn't, who had a horrible bigotry against other people of color. You know, he thought he was better than that. I mean, Jelly Roll was a great musician, uh, but he kind of chased Louis Armstrong out of New Orleans. Hmm. And thankfully for Louis Armstrong, Chicago had a wet appetite for jazz. I mean, I I, I tend to think of Buddy Bolden, Louis Armstrong. And Jelly Roll Morton is kind of the fathers of jazz. It is our native art form. One of the first books I ever read was written by Studs called Giants of Jazz. Yeah. And all yeah. those characters yeah, were in there. Yeah, exactly. There's an interesting story. Maher Ahmed is my dear Palestinian production designer. For everything. I remember him yeah, from yeah, Chain he, Reaction, from Fugitive. Yeah. From... And, and so, so Maher's family... Uh, left Palestine, Palestine under total duress. Their house was taken by the, mm-hmm. from them, and they were told they had to leave. And uh, they came to America, and they lived in Pennsylvania. And this Palestinian family became friends. The, 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 the son became involved and fell in love with the Jewish jeweler's daughter. Mm-hmm. So I know the story because of this relationship. Well, their family was from New Orleans. And they were in the scrap metal and the rag business. And there was this mm-hmm. black kid who was starving outside. And they helped him out. And they, they fed him. And they took care of him. And he wore a Jewish star the rest of his life. His name was Louis Armstrong. Ah. Wow. And so that was – and, and, and a great there's story. a whole story about how – so now you've got this incredible and family. And their daughter, Abby Ahmed, who did some music for The Guardian, is an incredible actress – singer, songwriter, mm-hmm. and it's all connected to this mixture of Palestinians and Jews and, and blacks in, in Pennsylvania. Absolutely. And, and New Orleans, where the melting pot 
that America always boasts of actually melted. Yeah. There's a great uh, Armstrong biography <clears throat> by Gary Giddens that's one of, one of the best music biographies I've ever read. Um, it, it seemed like Stony Island, your, your first picture, it's so informed uh, by the melding of musical idioms. Um, you got Ronnie Barron from New Orleans, Daddy G, Gene Labarge, the great. And, he, and I, I did some research on him, and he played with everyone. He played in Muscle Shoals, he played jazz, he played. Um, getting all of those energies together, I mean, you were really hit on something prescient. Well, Gene Barge was really critical for putting the band together. <clears throat> the movie's about my brother and his friend Stoney, who literally were best friends and they lived on the street in the south side. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. But we needed a band. So Gene Barge had this group of musicians that just worked on Natalie Cole's first album. Mm -hmm. And they were like superstar kids out of DuSable and Dunbar and stuff like that. And the putting of that band together uh, was amazing because Richie learned so much from these other musicians. Yeah, yeah. How in those scenes it, when they're jamming together, how much of that is like improvised and and you're just catching it on camera as opposed to you know written in the script or you know because there's this one part where uh, Richie copies a riff and they're like, well, that sounds similar to that one. Give me something else, and he gives him another riff to work with, and they keep going off each other and they build off. It eventually what becomes like one of the songs throughout the movie is that improv is that that was improv okay that cool. was gene that was gene being a band leader like yeah. he does i was betting my roommate i'm like i'm telling you man a lot of this is probably just them messing around and he's like nah man we we don't know that i'm like well i'll ask tomorrow well i mean put this way we knew that we wanted to film a rehearsal yeah and we knew the song they were going to work on right and i don't think that was written in <clears throat> maybe in the in the beginning of the setting up of the thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, what are you going to play? You're going to play, and then Gene said, "No, change it." And I said, "We're going to do that again." Yeah, you know? yeah. So that's how it worked. I mean, a lot of those scenes really uh, they really just thrive on like just the the process of making music and well, just the, what's running. We didn't have the money to uh, buy the rights to big songs like yeah. they did in the commitments. Yeah. So we had to write our own songs, mm -hmm. and which gave it an authenticity of you know some of the songs are better than others, and some are kind of what crude. I love about it yeah. is that it it only sounds like itself. So Stony Island is wholly original. Well, anyway, it, it's it's it was putting a band together, and some of those people are still very much involved in each other's lives. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. I watched Gene Barge play last night at uh, Buddy Guy's Legends, and he just turned 91 <clears throat> with yeah. the Chicago Rhythm and Blues All-Stars. And Tennyson Stevens texted uh, Gene Barge's daughter, Gina, who was sitting next to us last night. Well, Tennyson, I haven't seen in many years, but he's the guy, the great piano player who does mm -hmm. uh, Everything Must Change. And and uh, uh, so that people are still very connected to those early roots days of making music together. It's like, you know, when you start off with somebody in the early part of your career, and you work together with them, it, it, you don't lose those. I know who you are. You can't tell me. Yeah. Whatever, no matter what kind of a success or failure you had, I know who you are because I was there when it started. Yeah. yeah. Just a Closer Walk with Thee by Ronnie Barron from the Stony Island soundtrack. Stony Island, directed by Andy Davis, who we're sitting with right now. I was watching, uh, Max watched Stony Island last night and I watched The Fugitive. 
And what what really struck me is Gene at one point is playing uh, another cop. And, man, he just uh, he looked absolutely natural. He looked like he absolutely belonged there. And I got kind of uh, weepy for our old pal Joe Casala. Yeah. And uh, and and I miss our pal Ron Dean. And uh, Ron Dean's still alive, isn't he? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. But but I mean I haven't I haven't seen him. <laughs> you for, made it sound like he's no I, no I haven't. <laughs> but we haven't seen him in we forever. The last time we saw him was no. In that was that was interesting because that that scene you're referring yeah. to is is where Harrison's being interrogated. Yeah. And there's a see-through glass. And uh, the, the cops are getting evidence being brought in from the lab, you know. And, 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 and they don't believe him, and, you know. And, it's and, like... and, and, and so that it's interesting because Kasala was a real cop who interrogated a lot of people. Yeah. Very sophisticated. Ron Dean was a kid who had been sent to prison as a young man because he, in fact, was involved. He was getting beaten up by a cop. And somehow the cop got killed and he got accused of killing him. Yeah. So you had a cop killer and a cop interrogating Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. And Harrison, it was, we, we had certain hours. You know, we weren't allowed to work with him too many hours because he had his, he wanted to go get sleep. So we, we were the long day. So we said, okay, Harrison, you can go now, and I'll just shoot the coverage of the cops interviewing you. And Drew Ann, our group supervisor, will read. And Harris, Harrison was let go, and he started hearing, roll them. And he said, what do you mean? They're still shooting? And he didn't want them to have to play off camera to someone else. Yeah. Which is, which I remember. Is, which, so he came back to be in that scene. And that's where we got that great moment of him crying. So, you know, things happened. Anyway, so Gene Barge, Gene Barge walks in and he says, uh, the evidence says that he's uh, under, under his fingernails is her skin. Well, of course, when he tried to grab her, uh, grab, mm-hmm. she grabbed him when, when she was dying and Anyway, so but Gene played that part, and he'd been around cops. He'd been around clubs all of his life. Yeah. He knew Chicago. Yeah, he sold it, man. I yeah. mean, he really. Most I, musicians can. Most musicians who've had to perform and be on stage and entertain people and look people in the eye and engage them can act. That's probably why Stony Island works very well. As like they're really good group together, and they act. They hold their own, man. It's yeah. it's crazy. It's uh, you know, there's a couple musicians out there. Where they're like, oh, I'm I'm a multi-talented uh, thing. I can act. I can do this, and they can't really they can't really act as well as they can sing. But this bunch was like yeah. having a great time, and the chemistry was there, man. And uh, thank you. I, yeah. I liked Ronnie Barron in that. You know, the the piano player, the New Orleans guy in uh, uh, Stony Island. He's He's he looks so scary, but he's amazing. And in Code of Silence, he's even more scary looking. I, oh yeah. You know? So that was fun to take these musicians who I met in my first movie, and became part of this ensemble, and they became good friends. And I put him into these, you know, Chuck Norris movies or Steven Seagal movies. Or well, Joe Casale used to say, Andy always comes to town and hires the ten ugliest sons of bitches in <laughs> Chicago. Congratulations, you're obviously one of them. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, Kosala had a way with words. I mean, um... he was, he was, this, we're talking about a guy who I would originally say is a, a racist Polish cop who was very dangerous, okay? That being said, he had a kind of fairness about him. Yeah. You know, if you were, if you were a straight up person, didn't matter. If you were, uh, you know, on the take, didn't matter. He, 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 he. I mean, he, he was. He had. There was had an integrity. Code. There was integrity about him uh, that was beyond uh, what the stereotypes of a cop. So yeah. what, what was nice is I, there's a picture of us standing outside the Heartland with Michael Nino and Juan Ramirez mm-hmm. and Ron Dean and Mike James and myself and Gene Barge. And this is this is my ensemble of sort of Chicago mm-hmm. heavies and gangsters. You know? <laughs> so it's interesting. You're working with a lot of police. In these action movies, and a lot of crooks in a weird way. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. Well, behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, and then to have them all sort of come together and have to relate to each other, you realize anybody can get along. You know, you know I, I went to Joe's memorial, which happened right outside of his apartment building, next to a beautiful pond and there's swans there and stuff. And it was weird seeing all the guys from one side of the law and all the policemen from the other side. And it was it was lovely. I mean, everybody had this genuine kind of sense of loss, and 
got along great, and there was no acrimony. Uh, it was only Joe could have brought together that group of guys. Um, but you know, back to the, the what's definitively so Chicago about these films is that in the Fugitive, I was thrilled to see Pullman being filmed. You know, in parts of the city that never ever get filmed. You know, Code of Silence the same way. Um, uh, Lower Wacker Drive, Plymouth Street. Uh, I mean, places that, uh, you just never see in movies. Yeah, I, I like the stunts you do are very Chicago. And what I mean by that, I'll even go back to Stony Island, like the scene where your brother is trying to chase the CTA train. I mean, that's very Chicago to me. The fact that this grown guy in winter clothes and winter boots that probably like weigh him down a little bit and he's running as fast as possible. He just believes he can catch this train. That's a very Chicago mentality. Through River North, uh, which before it was River North. And then you had the, the chain reaction scene with the Chicago Bridge and Keanu Reeves crossing that. Yeah. And that's that's nail biting. I had a question. Did that train stunt in The Fugitive, was that really like a million dollars to do? I don't think it was. No, I don't think it was. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, mean, I don't somewhere. remember. I don't, but basically, what we did was we uh, found an empty track, a track that wasn't being used. We had to shoot that in North Carolina. That's the, oh, only, wow. the only thing that wasn't done in, in Illinois. And my genius producer, Peter McGregor Scott, with Roy Arbogast, our, our special effects supervisor, the way they figured out how to make it work was they found a locomotive and pulled everything out of it, it okay. was, so they mm-hmm. didn't have all that weight. And they pushed it from behind and engineered it to go off the track. Wow. So that we, we got to a certain point, it was going to ditch itself. And so that took some engineering and some, but it, it, there were no there were no visual effects. There were two, there was a couple intravision shots of Harrison jumping off, which was rear projection. Mm-hmm. It was just at the beginning of the digital world in 1993. Yeah. Right. And then a, a miniature of an uncoupling of a car. But otherwise, it's all for real. And I think the fact that it was real makes it f- have that more impact. You know. Yeah. What about the it's, bus rolling down the hill? I mean, that that's real. absolutely real. That was all real. Yeah, you had to wreck some big <laughs> big equipment, a train, had to derail a train. Well, I mean, how often do we see that today, man? I mean, I think The Fugitive is one of those last yeah. real action movies and I'm not just saying that I, I truly believe that I think it's affected people because yeah. I think people know it, that what they're seeing is not really happening yeah it's visually exciting I call it you eye can, candy you can kind of pick up the CGI it looks it's like a pretty, video game yeah. I gotta be honest like I look at Transformers and I'm thinking this is like a video game yeah, and, yeah. but even even just you know like air to air stuff you know and, and, and Dunkirk you know it's like it's really well done, but you know it's not real. I haven't seen Dunkirk. Do you have thoughts about it? Did you? I didn't. Like I it. haven't seen it either. Um, I, I was not. In, I was not engaged in the characters. I thought it was sort of flaccid. I, I didn't like. The, you know what? You're about the second person I've heard that. From. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. not here to diss people, but anyway, I also <laughs> heard that there were there were uh, thousands and thousands of colonial Indians who were lost, and nobody talked about that in yeah. the movie. There's no, there's none of that. Anyway, yeah, I, it, for me, it's been, it's been, it's been a little tough watching uh, movies today. It's kind of hard to look at the current things that are coming out and see something that's, you know, probably one out of ten is like not a remake or a prequel or or a comic book. Well, it's amazing because there are, in fact, great movies being made all the time. You just don't have a chance to see them. Yeah, they can't get distribution. Why is that? Well, because in order for for to advertise a movie, so you can be aware of it, mm-hmm. like a, a a major studio release, they're spending fifty million dollars advertising, just really? for America, wow. just to buy the networks, the cable systems, the uh-huh. net, the newspapers. So the buses, that's a fifty million dollar. Hello, we're coming out Friday. So that's now ridiculous. The, then the that's... picture's got its own cost. Yeah. So to cover the picture and and the advertising, it has to gross two and a half times that. How many pictures gross over two hundred million dollars? Very few. Not a lot. Mad and, that, and, the, and the other thing that's happened is because of the global market now, 
it has to play in China. It's got to play in Russia. Yeah. It's got to play in yeah. South America. So you can't do a film about a unique little Chicago story and have it play all over the world. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> now, in 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 reference to that, it, at the same time, episodic cable and uh, you know the HBOs, the Netflix, the Amazon, the programming for that has gotten much better, and it costs much less. And you know they're paying writers really, really well, and I think the uh, cineplexes. I mean, they've lost a huge segment of their audience to that. Would you consider a series at some point? Yeah, I, I was just got off the phone talking to some producers who want me to get involved in a series, and I would consider it sure. And and if the idea that you could do a long form, I think what's happening is these long form shows now are becoming the new novels. Yeah, yeah. People sit down That's and right. watch eight at a time. Yeah. And it's like oh, I read this thick novel. It's really cool. I know all the characters, and I can, <laughs> yep. you know, I remember, you know, with the backstory, and you know, so I'm I, happy to be in one of those, sir. It's uh, so I think buttering that, my know, bread right now. War and Peace would have been a, a, a miniseries. Mm-hmm. It was <laughs> anyway. Do you think The Fugitive would have been a miniseries? Because I mean, it's originally based on the TV noir series, series, the Roy Huggins um, series. Yeah. Do you think that could have worked out as like a... Well, they did They did try to develop it as a TV. Really? It came after the movie was a hit. They tried to develop it. It didn't, it didn't work. I mean, I, I didn't see it, but... Well, they, that they, was back in that day when they were like, oh, the movie's good. Let's make a TV show. And the TV show always flops. They did it with uh, Fast Times, Ferris yeah. Bueller. They did a... Bu- oh, man. Yeah. It goes back and forth. There's <laughs> yeah, a lot of definitely. TV shows that became movies. Oh, yeah. That some worked and some didn't work, you know. So it, yeah. it, it depends. Like, what was the one... Uh, Three Stooges? Uh, no, no. There was, there was <laughs> one that was particularly awful. Boss Hog in the car. And, oh, uh, d- uh, Beverly Not Hillbilly. Dukes of Hazard. right? Dukes of Hazard. Well, that yeah. was... They made a movie of that like year, decades after the show's done. Yeah. Right? Well, then... see, the, the problem once it gets into advertising. Yeah. If you come up with a new title that nobody knows anything about, mm-hmm. it's different than you say, it's just like this or it's the so and so. You know, it's like what's the uh, intellectual property that people can be recognized by? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and they're paying a lot of money for that. You know, it's got Marvel on it. People think, oh, it's got to be about something I want to see or don't yeah. want to see. Yeah, so uh, movies have kind of become this sort of like uh, the way books are like, oh, uh, the classic literary canon of, of characters, um, you know, they're going to do that with movies and they're going to create this eventual world where all the movie characters can coexist. I mean, that's what they've been kind of talking about. For the Marvel or, Universe, yeah. Well, for the especially. Marvel Universe, that's definitely going to happen. They put it's all already the superheroes together but, already. I mean, yeah. there's even creative editors now that are putting, like, club scenes together from different movies and color correcting them. And now Scarface is in the Mash-ups. same club as John Travolta from Saturday Night wow. Fever. It's, Ooh, I mean, yeah. is this the future of movies? I, I hope I think not. so. Well, I, I, <laughs> First of all, the, the problems with the movie business are, besides the costs, mm-hmm. people have so much available for them to absorb and see and share. So, and, you know, it kills you. People watching a movie on a, a screen that's three inches by four inches or less. Yeah. You know, and then we, we when I these, see people on the plane watching, oh, you yeah. know, on their Kindle or something, yeah, it's like. exactly. And, and so uh, – the idea of being in a theater and sharing the experience with lots of other people is a diminishing item. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you've not made a movie for quite some time since The Guardian. Right. What have you been working on as far as a new film? Well, I've been developing a, a, a project that I hope to get made someday, which is sort of, sort of a, an abbreviation of holes it's a modern interpretation of Treasure Island set in post-Katrina, Louisiana. And it's, it's about, you know, treasure, but also about a social justice uh, scenario where, you know, the people of Katrina have been screwed over and, mm-hmm. and, and they're going to rip down the Lafitte housing project. Well, Jean Lafitte was a, a pirate who— And a slave trader. He did a lot of things. Yeah. But uh, his fortune is like Al Capone's fortune. Everybody's still looking for it. And, really? And if you find it, it may be worth— Literally a fortune. It may be part of what Napoleon gave him after he got booted out of Haiti by the, the revolution, and and so who owns it? Who would who would who would own that treasure? And there's there are aficionados down there who you know are trying to find the clues yeah. to where Lafitte may have. So that's the story. 
Um, and I worked on. I was, was going to do a worked on a film uh, that was going to be shot in Panama. Uh, a very interesting story about a takeover of a Russian ship in the Panama Canal, and what would happen if that happened. And uh, we got very close to making Nothing it. Nothing good, but, man. But the Panama yes. Canal said, you know what? This is too real for us. We yeah. don't want to be involved. <laughs> we don't want to give any ideas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then uh, uh, I've just written a new screenplay that, uh, that it's, deals with very contemporary issues about uh, global armaments uh, f- that are being developed by the Russians and, and us and cyber warfare and also uh, – the, the rise of the militia movement the, yeah. in this country. So it's about race and it's about war and a uh, very contemporary story. I'm so excited about that. Well, the, it's the called mili- The Reckoning. The militia thing in this com- uh, country now, is, is it's no longer just the stuff of fiction. I mean, Charlottesville showed us firsthand. Um, so I would, I heard there's uh, 250 well-armed militias in the country right now. Yeah. Ooh. Well, Southern Poverty Law Center says there are 920-something operating hate groups in America right now. And it's uh, it's despairing. Sad, man. Me and Max talked about it on our last podcast that, you know, in the year 2017, we're talking about, uh, you know, Nazis on American streets. It's just vile. Yeah. Um, to wit, uh, four years ago, both Max and I were fortunate enough to be able to work a little bit on a documentary that Haskell Wexler and you made in Chicago. Four days in Chicago. And uh, that was the first time I noticed how militarized the police were now. Yeah, that was scary. Rahm Emanuel spent $17 million on additional law enforcement for just those four days. And... We, Andy and I and Max and I, we, we, when we stood down there, we saw policemen like turtled up like they were being well, deployed. Well, that's and, and, yeah, all the cops now uh, that you're seeing coming out, they're all robocopped. Yeah. They all have the – they look like they're playing – they look like they're catchers. You know, SWAT the, team guys. Yeah, gas it, It's This is the same thing, you know, when they had chemicals in World War II to kill people and the war ended, they didn't know what to do with it. So they started making – Pesticides. When you have all of these weapons and arms, and, and and they're being sold to armies around the world, and now you're afraid of your own people, you give those weapons to the cops. You, yeah. you suit them up. There's all kinds of programs for that. Well, you know, the first weapons ISIS ever got their hands on is all the shit we left over there. Right. You know, um, I, I I just uh, I, I I brought that up because um, you worked with the great Haskell Wexler. And I went, this morning I went through uh, the internet of all of the films he DP'd or directed, and he won two Oscars, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and uh, Bound for Glory. And was nominated for several more. Pro, oh yeah, I mean countless. Mate one. Yeah. And yeah, at the time film. he was 90 years old walking through the RoboCops, the yeah, yeah. Uh, the and crazy protesters with the, the shirts Chicago. over their nuts. faces. Yeah. and uh, yeah. What it was, it was basically Haskell coming back years later knowing that this demonstration against NATO policy and the war machines, which now with Putin and, and Trump is a whole other discussion, yeah. mm-hmm. but that, that there was going to be people in the street opposing it because GIs were going to throw their, their medals back because they were so disgusted mm-hmm. about the, the wars we were fighting in the Middle East. So so there was a huge – Rahm Emanuel, the new mayor, was going to say, not on my watch are they going to have the sign yeah. of ruckus that they had during Daly's watch. And uh, they had you know leaders from all over the world here, military leaders. It would be very embarrassing if they couldn't control the situation. Yeah, yeah. And so they just came out in force, and you know, and, and it was it was amazing to see how scary it was. And yet, gladly, nobody really got hurt that bad. You know, no. And, um, and, and nobody, and the and the people that did get hurt wanted to get hurt. I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah so so this is the this is the issue we're facing. There there was a lot of scary. Uh, 
things they had to use against the crowd, uh, specifically that um, big, uh, the sound, uh, yeah. the speakerphone. It's, yeah. But it, it, it yeah. goes up to a volume where yeah. your eardrum your will explode. Yeah. 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 It was scary that, that someone's prepared to use that on a crowd of people. It's, I've been to some rock concerts. they got the same things there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, but not like that. One of the things I... Yeah, um, that I wanted to get to uh, with that line of questioning was um, there's always, you've always been involved in activism. And I think maybe besides having its genesis and being raised by your parents who were activists, knowing Studs who was an activist, Haskell Wexler made Medium Cool, one of the greatest movies ever made in Chicago. You worked on that, right? And a, in a peripheral way, yeah. I did great. It was 1968, and I just gotten out of college, and I was working as an assistant cameraman in Chicago. And we, and Haskell was c- coming to make this feature, his first feature. He had been this revered cameraman, and Studs was working with him, consulting with him, introducing the actors, <clears throat> talking about issues in the community. And I think he said, uh, you know, Nathan met this kid, is uh, interested in film. And so because Haskell had a relationship with my parents, he sort of threw me a bone. And I wound up working on a phantom second unit with a guy named Barry Feinstein, mm-hmm. who was a still photographer who was married to Mary Travers. <clears throat> excuse me, Mary Travers at the time from Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh-huh. Barry Feinstein had shot the Birds album covers, the Bob Dylan album covers. Mm-hmm. He was a very hot photographer who had started shooting video and he worked with Frank Zappa, I think on 400 motels. Wow. Oh, he, he shot the Free Will and Bob Dylan cover too. And, he, and so Haskell's got this guy who was going to be not connected to him who was going to go out in the streets and shoot 16 millimeter and I was assigned to be the loader. So we were, the, we were literally the only f- camera crew on the other sides of the tanks at I think it was 16th and Wabash or Michigan, mm-hmm. when Dick Gregory said, may he rest in peace, yeah. come on yeah. to my house. After everybody got shut down in front of the Hilton, said, well, we're just going to take a walk to my house. And they can't stop us from, I'm inviting you all to come to my house. And they yeah. put the, the, the tanks showed up with the barbed wire. Oh, man. And, and then they gassed everybody. And there were delegates that were running away. And we were the only f- camera crew. I don't know what happened to that footage. It got lost with Paramount and Medium uh-huh. Cool or something like that. But there was amazing footage there. So Haskell, you know, knew there was going to be a volatile thing happening with the NATO convention. And so he brought Mike Gray, who became radicalized in 68 uh, because he had – Mike Gray had been making commercials and his f- company, the film group, was right near Lincoln Park. Well, he saw what happened – that night in Lincoln Park, when they drove every, all the all the yippies out of the park with he tear walked gas. out of his ad agency job that day for lunch and never went back, you know. Yeah, yeah. And Mike became a, a great documentary filmmaker, also and writer. He wrote China Syndrome, China Syndrome. Murder of Fred Hampton, American Revolution, uh, Two, and uh, a dear friend. So he so Haskell got Mike and myself to to come with him, and it was you know people who had been there in '68 revisiting. Chicago again for another major political mm-hmm. event. It, well, it didn't turn out to be as wild and political, but there were some amazing things going on throughout the city. We yeah. went from not just like Tony was part of us. We went to see the nurses yeah, who were fantastic. You know, the nurses were, were great. And Tony talked about, you know, everybody's family has a nurse in their life. You yeah. know? I have two, two sisters that are nurses. And, you know, what touched me the most, Andy, is that those women all flew to Chicago on their own dime. And what they were marching for, they didn't want a thing for themselves. They wanted one penny from every trade on Wall Street to go to a health care system. Yeah. The nurse march was beautiful. The most touching part of the movie for me is when the veterans are throwing their purple hearts or medals of honor. just What they were calling their the medals stage. for murder back. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's a powerful thing to do. I mean, it's so hard to... Um, to do something like that, why, why would you throw away a medal, you know, that's been given to you, awarded to you, you know? But it was for what they thought was dishonorable. A lie, and yeah. it's it's uh, yeah. it's tough to say, you know, this was a lie. And I, you know, I I honor those guys. I was very uh, 
emotional, you know, I don't plan mm-hmm. on enlisting or, or, or being in the service at all. And I felt very, um, not, not cowardly, but just kind of, um, I don't know. I always, helpless. Helpless uh, yeah, I always feel a little deficient when I am around guys who've had to serve their country and had to see battle. It's like, this is the guy who paid for my freedom. We and need to treat those. We misuse. Well, the, the, the we prob- misuse the faith. Right. The problem soldiers. is the problem is the people who paid for my freedom. So you go and you go. You start studying the motivations of war and why we're at war and who we're at war with. There are very few just wars. No. You know, very few just wars. And you know, and it's interesting because my father uh, landed in Normandy in World War II, and. He 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 couldn't get in the. He wanted to go fight fascism, and he had a hernia. They had to get it fixed before they would take him. And he left mm-hmm. a, a wife and a young daughter to go fight. And you know, I was raised with there was such black and white about what that war was about. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and and the whole issue of what Russia was going through and what Stalin was doing, and it got very. It, it was amazing. Okay, so now now you've got Korea. You got Vietnam. You got the wars in Central America. You got the wars in the Middle East. You know, and how much of that all about? Now that I've grown up, I realize so much of this is about energy. These yeah. wars are about energy and profit. Yeah, I mean, whoever controls the supply. I mean, Pearl Harbor supposedly happened because we threatened to cut off the supply of oil to Japan. Mm-hmm. War Inc. You know, War Incorporated. I mean, that's that's kind of how I feel. That where we're at right now. Yeah, and now it's you know having studied what's happening with alternative energy, we know that we could power the entire country without using oil. We could do it. We use Absolutely. oil for making plastic and medicines and whatever you clothes, mm-hmm. but we don't need to burn it to make energy and wreck our environment. Exactly, and so but there's a conspiracy, which is. We have trillions of dollars invested in the ground and research and property, and, and we're going to develop this stuff. And we're going to lie about what it does to you. We're going to lie about what it does to the, the environment. And you're going to buy it because the alternatives aren't there yet. There are now hydrogen cars that are fantastic. Toyota's got one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honda's got one. BMW's got one. They spent a billion dollars developing these cars, each country company. But they didn't develop a hydrogen infrastructure. Who's going to do that? They're not going to the government. Donald Trump is not going to say tomorrow we're closing the coal mines and we're going to figure out how to turn those workers into people developing hydrogen power. Yeah, it's which be we great. could do. Which we could yeah. do. <laughs> That'd be huge, huge. <laughs> yeah, he's not what you would call a visionary. Well, you know? and, and, and oh, but even if he was, somebody would be there to say, "Get out of here, or you're dead, or something." You know, what I mean, it's it's yeah. not it's not something that's in the works, and it could. He wouldn't be the first politician killed over oil. I remember, know? I remember going to visit MIT years ago when we were checking out colleges, and there was a display about what the United States had done to gear up for World War II, how mm-hmm. overnight, without computers, fax machines, with typewriters and, and Xerox paper. Or not carbon paper, right? They rationed rags and rubber and butter and gasoline. And they turned factories and made cars into factories and made tanks and all this stuff. So the point is this country was able to overnight transform itself because mm-hmm. of the motivation, the money. I'm sure a lot of people made money on it, but still. So if you said our goal is to change this country, put people to work, and make it a cleaner, healthier place where people can support themselves. And it's doable. It's totally mm-hmm. doable. Uh, that, that, that when we were kids, we talked about this, that uh, a guy made $157 a week, worked in the steel mills. He had a house. His wife didn't have to work. Good public schools, vacation, pension, health care. Mm-hmm. And that was the standard. It was like, you know, anybody who wanted to work could get that kind of job. Right. And it all went away. It all went away because it was cheaper and no pollution controls and unions and, you know, they send it overseas and you don't have to be dealing with that stuff. Yeah, they like to demonize unions for all of that. They like to blame union workers for the uh, manufacturing going away. And without the union workers, you don't have a middle class. 
And without them, they you have no way to better your lot in the workplace as a worker. Well, there's two aspects. One is there are certain jobs that are just going away because it's machines are going to take them over. Yeah, yeah buggy whip jobs. Okay. But then there, there are other jobs that, you know, for example, training people to be plumbers and carpenters and things that need to be done yeah. either in a factory or in a home that can't be sent overseas because it has to be done right here to do yeah. it. Mm-hmm. There's a shortage of that. I was noticing, you know, the number in California, the workforce of Mexican or Latin American workers who are building things is huge. Yeah. Huge. And here it's Polish. I yep. noticed there's so many Polish workers working in the state. And a great deal of... Uh, Latinos. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know... You know, it, Donald Trump makes all this noise about, oh, Mexicans, all this horse shit. Um, I, I'm going to tell you something. If every... Uh, Mexican guest worker decided not to show up to work tomorrow, about 80% of the restaurants in Chicago would not open. But there's a there's a great movie called A Day Without a Mexican. Yeah. yeah. It was made by a friend of mine, and, and uh, it was pretty interesting. With Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts? <laughs> no, it's not. Oh. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> not, oh, not that movie? Oh, okay. We're still le- we'll uh, start learning how to uh, <laughs> sync up the uh, internet to this thing. Yeah. We're going to take a musical break. Gene Barge, a song for Percy, one of Chicago's great musicians, actors, eminences, presences, and a steady member of uh, the crew that Andy Davis puts in almost every movie he makes. And we are here with Andy Davis, the man, the myth, the the director. (laughs) Uh, Oh, God. Just kidding. Uh, But honestly, man, it's been awesome to uh, just talk to you this past hour. It's been educational for sure well thank you max <laughs> having seen it's you, obvious having, we're going to need another hour too yeah, yeah having, having seen you grow up you're really becoming a an amazing young man thank you thank you man thank you that means a lot um but uh so i i said uh earlier my dad did uh i watched stony island last night it's a great movie but how do you go from this heartfelt american graffiti like movie to you know code of silence and and steven seagal and all of that, like, how, how does that happen? Well, you know, the, the action movies, tough guy movies, especially in the early '70s, um, were the, 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 the mode. Yeah. It was the mode. You know, the the basic story was: little guy gets screwed, comes back, tries to make right, and succeeds. Okay, and that and that was the theme for most movies because if you're a poor working class person on a weekend you felt depressed, you Since went high you'd, noon, you'd man. go and cheer for somebody and say, "Yeah, go get him, cool breeze," you know, and uh, and and that was that was the motive. Anyway, so I found that if you you know if you had enough action, quote unquote, uh, which means basically shooting, chasing, fighting, mm-hmm. in a movie, you could do very political stuff. How did so, you squeeze the... Well, Code of Silence, stuff? for example, you know, was a, was a script that uh, was sitting around and uh, was offered by uh, Mike Medavoy at, at Orion Pictures. And uh, um, I started looking into, you know, where he liked Stony Island. He thought the fabric of Stony Island was very urban and gritty and he mm-hmm. thought I could do it an is. action movie. So, and I had shot a lot of movies as a cameraman uh, for Corman, for Gene Corman, Hitman... Uh, the Slams, 
um, uh, cool breeze. These are all movies. I remember the right. slams. That was with Leon Isaac Kennedy. No, the slams were with Jim Brown. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. And, well, my dad. Penitentiary often, was Leon Isaac Kennedy. My dad often Kennedy. told me about Roger Corman and just the crazy movies. Yeah. He well, this is produced. his brother. This is his brother Gene. Oh, okay. And Gene, Gene was anyway. We were making black action remakes of MGM scripts. Get Carter, Asphalt Jungle being remade, but Thalmus Vasulolo, Bernie Casey, Pam Greer, Judy Pace, we like Ray, Pam Raymond St. Jacques, you know, all these actors, wonderful. So when we got when I got Code of Silence, basically it was a story about a, you know, a cop who was getting shut out, isolated, because he was telling the truth about some corruption or some malfeasance on the part of the police, which is very topical today. And uh, I remember um, John Drummond introduced me to a guy named Wally the Wiretapper. John Drummond was the great Chicago crime reporter. The Bulldog. We know the Bulldog. Bulldog John Drummond. And he's a sweet man. I put him in several movies. And he said, well, you know, there's a guy named Wally the Wiretapper who was a sort of mob-connected guy who would be able to bet on horse races when they were over. <laughs> Because <laughs> the wire services, right, right. you know, and the cables. Well, it's like the sting. It, yeah. It, so he, yeah. So, <laughs> so, but he said one day there, you know, there was a family uh, that controlled the heroin in Chicago, and the mob guys thought that maybe they would whack it because there were four hundred thousand dollars sitting on a kitchen table every Thursday, and that became code of silence. What would happen if? The mob tried to take on the Colombian. We made them Colombians, right? And uh, and uh, and it fell apart, and there was retribution. So that became, and there was also a throwdown down gun with an older cop who had screwed up, and he tried to cover up. So, so there were themes in there that were very topical to me, you know. Um, and then above the law was about Iran Contra and about covering up things that were going on in Central America, seen through the eyes of a guy who had witnessed malfeasance in Vietnam. So the, so the, and then the package was about disarmament and about uh, the fact that the, the generals of uh, the Soviet Union, the generals of America, didn't want to give up their nukes. I'm a huge fan of that movie. And very often it'll come on at like 11.30 or 1 in the morning. Yeah. If it comes on, I got to watch we it. We caught it actually a few months ago. Yeah. And we were just dying at Tommy Lee Jones, man. I, I, man I've seen so Tommy good. Lee Jones, but I've... I've never seen him with that energy he brought yeah. to that movie. That was the first time we worked together. And, and of course, Hackman was great. And Dennis Franz yeah. from, from Stony Island yeah. was in it. And Joanna Cassidy. And it's, a, it's a very, it, it talk about topical movies, you know, in terms of what's going on with, with North Korea and mm -hmm. stuff right now. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. Then, and then um, Under Siege was a Korean submarine. Yes. that Tommy Lee Jones has, and they're starting to take the, 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 the tomahawks off the USS Missouri, you know. So there's a very timely kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. wow. And then The Fugitive, um, when I got the script, it was, a, it was very, very different. There was really no substance to what the story was about other than somebody, some doctor was accused of killing his wife. Was, well, well, the series was based on the Sam Shepard case right. so, in Cleveland. So, but the, the, the script I got, the Tommy Lee Jones character had hired the one-armed man because Harrison had screwed up on his wife in an operation. It made no sense at all. Oh, that's so corny. So yeah. I called my sister, Joe, uh, Josie, and I said, okay, you're a nurse. What could get a doctor in a lot of trouble? And it turned out we developed a drug called Provasic, Provascular, and a company called Devlin McGregor, Devlin McGregor, Peter McGregor Scott, and uh, and oh, cool. uh, and and it was about how the drug protocol was being done at this hospital in Chicago. And Harrison Ford, the, the surgeon, said, "This stuff is causing people to bleed. This is no yeah. good." And they tried to get him out of the way and shut him up for a billion dollar profit. There's a line in there, Tommy Jones's remix. You know, Devlin McGregor last year, yeah. $20 billion. I should have been a doctor. $7 billion. <laughs> I should have been a doctor. Yeah. You know? wow. yeah. So, so it, I was able to get themes in these movies that were about corporate malfeasance, military malfeasance, uh, greed, uh, cops, you know, things like that. And then, you know, and then the other sides of that are, are movies about sharing and loving, which are holes and 
and which also has a dark. Holes is great, steel man. Little, steel big. Steel Big Steel Little with Andy Garcia and Alan Arkin. And uh, is a, is a, I, I, it's hard to find, but if yeah. you can get a hold yeah. of it, it holds it's up really film. well today. Yeah. So, you, so you, I would, you look I've at been, the list of people you have worked with, and it's it's. Can I name that real yeah. quick? I, there's some names missing, too. These are just my favorites. Okay, so Gene Hackman, Tommy Lee Jones, Chuck Norris, Steven Seagal, Keanu Reeves, Morgan Freeman, Michael Douglas, Ashton Kutcher, Kevin Costner, my hero Arnold Schwarzenegger, Gwyneth Paltrow, Sigourney Weaver, and my man Shia LaBeouf. And Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford. Yeah. What the hell am I thinking? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I was and Nate so... Davis and Richie Davis. And, 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 Nate and, and Richie and Joe Casala. Yeah. Julian Davis. Uh, and <laughs> our our next show, Michael Gaylord James. Mike yeah. James. Oh man, yeah. He's I just I was I was I'm gonna dying. start calling him that Gaylord. Well, I never knew he had Gaylord in his name until uh we saw the the invitation, yeah, Michael yeah. Gaylord James. That's, yeah. and Mike's, that's his name you know, as, a, as an artist, as a photographer. Yeah. Mike, uh, Mike's father produced Man of La Mancha on Broadway. Do you know that? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, his father was a th- theatrical stage producer. You know, and his son, Cadian, is in the greatest Chicago rock and roll band of the last 20 years. Twin, Twin Peaks. Peaks. Yeah. They They're rock. Good. He's like Jagger, that kid. Oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> and he sings really well. They they remind me of the reckless abandon of the early Stones. You know, I mean, they're great. I'm yeah. a big. They're Twin really Peaks good. Fan. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. Well, I want to thank you guys for uh, <laughs> having an interest in this old man. And uh, oh, amen, man. Andy, we man, we'd love you. to have you back too. And I, and I know I know that uh, Tony's a Renaissance character himself, who who does everything and. And I'm really appreciative of our relationship. And Max, you're growing up to be a great kid. I'm glad you're helping your father join the new age. Yeah, I, yeah, I would be lost without him. I'm honestly. dragging him in there. Uh, Andy, thank you, man. I, I cannot think of a better first guest for Amen. this podcast. Amen. Seriously, Amen. the greatest filmmaker Chicago has ever produced, sir. Oh, Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> well, him too. You know. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Hey guys, this is Max Fitzpatrick of the Max and Tony Show. You just heard our second episode. First and foremost, thank you Chicago filmmaker Andy Davis. You're always a treasure to be around. Big shout out to Forbidden Root. Next time you're in Chicago, check out their brewery on 1746 West Chicago. We also want to give a big praise to Parkwalk Productions, home of the Max and Tony Show. Remember, check out Adventureland Gallery and the Dime Showroom on 1513 Northwestern. Friday, September 1st, we will be showing Michael Gaylord James from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Free admission, pet friendly, and free drinks. It's going to be a great time. If you want to reach the podcast through my dad, go to TonyFitzpatrick.co. Go to his Instagram at TonyFitzpatrick9. Go to his Twitter at ThisTrain. If you want to reach the podcast through me, go to MaxwellFitzpatrick.com. Or check my Instagram or Twitter handle at MaxFitzpatrick. Remember, tune in next time for episode three. We're going to be talking sports, politics, Chicago stuff, art, all that and more. Stay tuned. The Max and Tony Show. For the Stony Island Band.